more to these passages than I even realized the first time that I read through it. So I'm so excited to dive in, and I really hope that they impact you the same way that they impacted me, because I just feel like there's just so much when we dig in that we're going to hopefully discover tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer, and then we will get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing all of us here tonight. Um, There's so many things that are competing for our time and our attention, and I just thank you just for all of the women here that have decided that this is worthwhile to invest their time in, and I pray that as we are here tonight, that your spirit would be moving and active and just changing all of us as we listen to the word and dig in and discover more about it. I pray that this would be a time that we're not just learning information, but that you are changing us and conforming us more into your image. So I just pray for the presence of your spirit, that you would speak um, only your truth through me and filter out anything that is not of you and um, just be with us all. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, I am going to go ahead and start by just jumping into the text. So if you want to open with me, we are going to go chunk by chunk here, and I'm going to start um, just we're in chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll start digging in. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned in the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Okay, so we open our section with a big war brewing. Like if you marked your map, you saw that the Philistines are gathering close to the border of Israel. And if you think about just modern day warfare, anytime that a huge army is gathering at your border, that is very, very ominous. It's very scary, okay? And so Israel, to defend themselves, they are gathering on the other side of the border. And that's kind of what's happening. And we hear just in a very short clip, just these two verses that Israel lost. The Philistines win. 4,000 Israelites are killed. So to us, we kind of hear that, and we just think, okay, well, they lost. They must have maybe had less men, or maybe they didn't fight as well. Um, Maybe they didn't have as good of weapons. But to Israel, though, this meant so much more. To face this kind of a defeat among their enemies, it meant a lot more than just we didn't have as many men or we didn't have as good of weapons. Do you remember in week one, we talked about the covenant that God had made with Israel? And I had you kind of look in your homework to kind of review what that covenant was. So during that covenant, this was a conditional covenant, and God promised that if they obeyed him, then he would bless them and give them victory over their enemies. 
But if they did not obey them, then he would curse them and allow them to be defeated by their enemies. And throughout the Old Testament up to this point, God had blessed them with a lot of different victories over their enemies. But he'd also allowed a lot of defeats. And the difference, though, was that in previous defeats, Israel remembered the terms of the covenant. Okay? They recognized their need to repent when these defeats happened. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, like if you did our Judges study, then um, which comes chronologically right before 1 Samuel, you'll probably remember that there was a pattern that happened all through that book. And that pattern was that Israel would start to worship foreign gods. So then God would allow them to be defeated by their enemies. They would become enslaved or something along those lines. Israel then would recognize, oh, we have, been fa- we have not been faithful to the covenant. They would repent, and then God would send a judge to deliver them and free them from their enemies or give them victory over their enemies. And this was a cycle that happened for a couple of hundred years. So Israel was very familiar with this cycle, okay? Defeat in battle was a huge tool that God used to wake them up from their idolatry and cause them to repent and turn back to him. So now in the text, we're seeing kind of a digression here, okay? Because it appears with this defeat, it doesn't really occur to them, oh, maybe we've sinned. Maybe we're not being faithful to the covenant. They're almost surprised that God allowed it to happen. They're so confused, like, why did God allow this? And so they don't consider that God is trying to communicate something to them. They don't show any hint of repentance. What they do instead is they kind of try to recreate history. So in your homework, I had you look up the Battle of Jericho. And this was the battle that established Israel's presence in the Promised Land after they had been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. So Jericho was a city that was like tightly shut with a wall around it. And God told Israel after they had wandered for 40 years, hey, I'm going to give Jericho into your hands and this is what I want you to do. I want you to go, and you're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to take my Ark, and you're going to start walking around the city with it. You are going to blow trumpets, and you're going to give a great shout. Now, I want you to notice here that God is the one dictating this battle at Jericho. It's his idea. He initiates it. He gives them all the instructions on what to do with it. It is completely led by God. Okay, this is not the case for this current battle in 1 Samuel. This is their idea, and God has not said a word about it. He did not indicate in any way that this is something that they should be doing. Now, side note, these stories can be kind of hard to read because it's hard for us to reconcile the God that we know with the God who is telling his people, hey, go and kill everybody in this city, right? Like, that's really, really hard, and I don't want to just gloss over that. We don't have time to do a deep dive into that tonight because there's so much ground to cover, but I do want to challenge you guys to try to take yourself out of your own context and kind of the world that we know, and put yourself in the shoes of what it was like to be an Israelite back at this time. Because this is a time when there were wars happening all the time, and they would not have seen this as something that was causing them to struggle with God's character. Like, this was something that would have shown them that God is faithful to them, and he is their protector and their provider. Because remember, they had only been, like, kind of functionally a nation for about 40 years. So they didn't have this long-standing military history. They didn't have these war heroes that had proven themselves in these battles before. They had very little war experience up to this point. And so it took a tremendous amount of faith that God was going to do what he said he was going to do to give them this promised land that he had promised them. (coughs) For them to go in and march into this fortified city with an established army. So they looked at this story of the Battle of Jericho as this huge reminder that it didn't matter who they faced as long as God was the one who was leading them and God was the one who was with them. Because God was their war hero. God was their military power, okay? So Jericho, that is what it symbolized to them. 
So now fast forward back to 1 Samuel, the battle that we're in now, several hundred years later. They lose this battle, okay? They lose 4,000 men, and instead of remembering the covenant, instead of seeking God and repenting of their sin, they're like, hey, I know. Let's make God do what he did at Jericho. Guys, this was not them trying to, like, give God glory or trust in his power. This was them trying to force God's hand. They wanted to control God. They wanted to manipulate him into serving them without actually having to be faithful to their side of the covenant. Now, it helps to understand that this was a time when wars and battles were fought constantly among the nations in the area. And the outcome of these battles was perceived as determining whose God was greater. So when there was a battle between two nations, the winner didn't just communicate what nation was stronger, it communicated what God was stronger. So you can almost imagine them thinking here, well, hey, if we bring the ark, if we bring God's actual physical presence, then his reputation's on the line. Like, he's not going to let the nation see him defeated. He's not going to suffer that kind of shame or humiliation. If we bring the ark, the symbol of his presence, it's like our ace in the hole. He has to give us victory. Otherwise, he's demonstrating that the Philistine God is greater than him. So do you see how they were trying to control God? They wanted God to serve them rather than submitting themselves to serve and worship him. It's a big difference. And if you think about it, they had been worshiping all of these foreign gods, and that is how these foreign gods operated. All of these foreign gods that they were in this land, that they had been surrounding themselves with these Baals and the Ashtaroth that we'll see about later, they operated the way in the, in the manner that they're treating God, where there were certain things you could do to get those gods to do what you wanted them to do. That's why they were so appealing. You could kind of control them. So they are trying to treat God the way these other nations treated their false gods. Now, this seems pretty atrocious when we kind of lay it out all like this, right? But before we judge them too harshly, let's stop and consider how often we do the same things. Like, how often do we want or even expect God to bless us without really giving him our hearts and worship? We love to be our own God. We love to be in charge of our own lives and to do what we want to do. We like to call the shots. But we also find ourselves going to church and reading our Bibles and doing a lot of things to, um, to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And a lot of times we do that in expectation that we will get something in return. How many times have you caught yourself thinking when you're facing something, a form of suffering or something hard, God, why me? Like, why is this so hard? I've been so faithful to you. Like, why are you not giving me this job that I really desperately want? I've served you so faithfully. Why are you withholding this from me? Do you see it? Do you see the subtle assumption that if we do certain things, then God is supposed to show us this worldly favor? So we've probably all felt that on a certain level, on some level, if we face disappointment and we face suffering. We've probably all had those moments when we're like, God, why? I've, I've been nothing but faithful to you. Why are you doing this to me? So we need to examine our own hearts and ask, how are we treating our relationship with the Lord? Like, are we truly worshiping him? Is he my Lord that I am laying down my life and gladly following wherever he leads? Or is he simply useful to me? Useful to me to have the kind of life that I want and get the things that I think I deserve. We're often not that much different than Israel. 
Okay, so they bring the ark to try to force God to give them victory, and they do everything that they did at Jericho. And the Philistines are actually pretty scared because, guys, they've heard about Jericho, and they've heard about what happened in Egypt. These aren't just stories that were celebrated by Israel. Everybody in these areas have heard the stories of what Israel's God had done in these places, okay? So they know on some level, hey, we don't need to take this lightly. The presence of God, of Israel's God, is not something to take lightly. So what happens next? Does it work? Does God grant them victory to make sure that the other nations see that he is greater than their false gods? Does he let Israel force his hand? No, he does not. In fact, in this battle, in this battle, they lose a whole lot more than just 4,000 men. They lose 30,000 soldiers, okay? This battle is exponentially more devastating, okay? We also learn at this time that Hophni and Phinehas are among those 30,000, who, by the way, we saw in the text were present when Israel came and said, hey, let's bring the ark. Hophni and Phinehas were totally on board with this plan, okay? So the leadership is completely in the same boat, okay? So we see that they um, are killed, and this kind of fulfills the prophecy that was given to Samuel um, that we learned about last week. But worse than all of that, worse than all of the death of all of those people, the the ark of God is taken by the Philistines, and that is no small thing. We're going to get into the significance of that in a minute. But um, just, just take a minute just to think about the fact that God did not allow himself to be manipulated by Israel because it would have gone against his character and it really wouldn't have helped Israel at all either. It would have let them, it would have enabled them to continue on in their sin. One commentator put it, he said, Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. So let's see what happens next. Let's pick back up at verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? The man hurried and came and told Eli, Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So I want you all to notice that it was not the slaughter of so many people that caused Eli's distress. Not his greatest distress, that is. It wasn't the news even that his sons had been killed in battle. It was that the ark of God had been taken. The ark is what he had been trembling for, okay? So the news that this had was so great that he fell backwards, broke his neck, and he died. You guys, to lose the ark was to lose the actual presence of God. 
to lose the presence of the one who had delivered them from slavery, who had led them into the promised land, and who had provided for all of their needs and given them so many victories. And we're really meant to feel the depth of this loss. That's why we're given these accounts of these two people who died simply because they heard the news of it, okay? So not only Eli's death at hearing about it, but even more at the death of Phineas's wife as she gives birth. Throughout the Bible, we get a lot of birth narratives, right? There's a lot of instances where we hear about somebody's birth. And a lot of times, these um, are even kind of like we hear the story about somebody who is barren. Their womb is closed. They're not able to have children. And so we see that God kind of does certain miracles to create the births of these children. And those stories are meant to show how God's involvement is in ushering these new chapters. These birth narratives kind of symbolize new chapters or new eras that are coming about for history. And so God kind of shows his hand and how he allows that to even come about into being, okay? So these birth narratives remind us about work that God does to bring about his will for his people. This birth narrative, though, is a little bit different because rather than marking the beginning of a new chapter in history, it's sort of symbolizing the end of one right now in Israel's eyes. Um, like Eli, her main distress is not in the death of her husband, but it's in the fact that the ark had been taken. So she says twice, which we've talked about how that is something, when something is said twice, it is, is twice for a reason. That's some significance attached to that. So two times she says, the glory of God has departed from Israel and the ark has been taken. And she even names her son Ichabod, which can you imagine giving your son a name that means like, where is the glory or no glory? Like that's not something that you would typically name your son. So this is meant to help us really feel the depth of the loss that they were facing right here. One commentator commented that she probably taught more theology in her death than her priest husband Phineas had in his whole life. So that's pretty powerful. So the text has taken a lot of care to show us just how devastating the loss of the ark was for Israel. It was more devastating than losing a child or losing a husband, and it caused so much pain that people who heard the news of it literally fell down dead. And why was this? Because with the capture of the ark, some commentators have said that we reach a point in Israelite history lower than any since the captivity in Egypt. The loss of the ark is a moment of total despair because it symbolizes the loss of Israel's unique covenant relationship with Yahweh, and it leaves her future in doubt. So we are meant to finish chapter 4 with Israel in total despair, and we are meant to feel the weight of that, okay? So now we're going to turn our eyes off of Israel for a little bit, and we're going to look at the Philistines and see how they are faring with the ark in their presence. So let's go ahead and read chapter 5 and see what happens to them. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of, God, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. 
So they sent and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought us round, brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the city, the cry of the city went up to heaven. <coughs> okay, so two things happen in this chapter. First, the Philistines bring the ark to one of their five major cities and place it next to Dagon in their own place of worship. So if you did the homework, you hopefully learned that Dagon was kind of the main deity of the Philistines. Uh, we see a lot of times, like mentioned throughout the Bible, Baal and Ashtaroth. Well, Dagon was actually the father of Baal. He was kind of considered to be the creator of all things. And he was this weird, like, half man, half fish. Like, I think from the waist up he was man, the waist down he was fish. They're super, super strange. And so he's kind of the creator of all things. And so they take the captured ark and they place it next to his statue, who in their perspective had just proven his power over Yahweh by defeating, when they defeated Israel, right? We kind of established that. So then what happens? Well, the next morning they go in and see that Dagon has fallen on his face to the ground in front of the ark. Now, if you kind of get a visual image of this in your head, you see this Philistine god who is actually bowing before the god of Israel. It's kind of supposed to be humiliating to that Philistine god. So they pick him up, and they put him back in his place. And the next morning, not only has he fallen over, but this time his head and his hands are cut off, okay? Now, guys, this is not just saying that he fell and broke. It's saying that they were cut off. During this time decapitation and cutting off of hands was a common military practice, okay? This was a sign of military defeat. God makes it very, very clear here that, yeah, he allowed his people to be defeated in battle, but God himself was in no way defeated by the Philistine God. First, he humiliates him and makes him bow before him, and then he shows that he has defeated him in war by cutting off his head and his hands, just like what would happen on the battlefield. See, Israel thought that they could force God's hand because they assumed that he would not let himself be seen as humiliated or defeated by the Philistine God. Well, they were right and they were wrong. They were wrong that he was going to give them victory, but they were right that, yeah, he is going to prove himself to be the more powerful God. He's not going to let himself be seen as defeated. God does not need Israel to prove his power. He's able to do it completely on his own. He made sure that Israel lost that war because he wanted to stay true to the terms of his covenant with them, but he also didn't let himself be used as a pawn, and he proved that he was the more powerful God. He showed that Dagon was merely a statue that could be broken, and he did not stop there, guys, because after showing clearly to the Philistines that their victory in Israel in no way was an indication of their false God being more powerful, then he takes the war to the Philistines themselves, okay? In the city where the ark was, he starts to ravage them with tumors. Now, a lot of people kind of think that this is more like something visible that they could see on their bodies. We see, like, later on that there's also mice involved, and so a lot of commentators kind of commented on it could have been similar to, like, the bubonic plague, where these mice come and bring this disease that shows up in these um, tumors that are kind of, there could be some translation difference in how we perceive what we, when we hear the word tumor. 
okay? So he is going and he's ravaging them with tumors. Now, the Philistines are very familiar with the plagues that got sent on Egypt before. So in addition to this, plagues are often described in the Near East as being from the hand of a god, okay? So that's like the phrase that they would use. Plagues were considered to be from the hand of a god. So they would have naturally assumed that this tumors that are happening only in the city where the ark of God was could have been a plague sent by the hand of Yahweh, while their God is currently handless and powerless to help them. So then they move the ark to another major city, and the same thing happens there. And then they move the ark to a third major city, and the same thing happens there. Now, these weren't just regular cities. I had intended to have this be clear in the homework, but I forgot that we had switched. I, I think I marked this on the Marco Polo. But these were, um, so the Philistines had five kind of kings or lords, and they lived in five main cities. And these were the five major Philistine cities. And then there were lots of other smaller cities around. So the three cities that the Ark was taken to were three of the five major cities that like, were the homes of the three of the five Philistine kings or lords. So this was happening not in the middle of nowhere. It was happening where all would see and hear, so that it would cl be clear to all in Philistine that the hand of God was at work without Israel even being there to participate in what he was doing. Now, I want to pause a second before we move on again, and I want us to look inward again. The more we kind of study the Bible, the more we start to see that there's typically two stories going on. There's the story of what people were doing, and then the story is, there's the story of what God is doing, either in them or through them or despite of them. So usually, in a lot of the Old Testament especially, either the like there's those two stories are kind of happening alongside each other or kind of with each other. Like maybe half of the time we see these stories of people who are seeking God, trying to faithfully serve God, and God is using them. He is moving within them and through them in a powerful way. Okay, So those people are kind of cooperating with God, being used by God. Other times we see what the people are doing is working actively against God, and God works despite them. We saw that a lot in Judges, that as the Judges go downward and sometimes are fully in sin, God works despite them, okay? We see things in, like, the Old Testament where it's like what you planned for evil, God used for good, okay? So God is always fulfilling his purposes, whether the people are cooperating with him or working against him. Now, here we see kind of a different situation because here— God is at work without the help or hindrance of his people at all. He takes down the Philistine God and wins a war with them all by himself. Well, who knows what Israel's even doing during all this time. They're kind of off doing their own thing. Israel is absent altogether in what God is accomplishing here. And that really hit me a lot this week. Because I don't know about you, but when I think about myself, because I've thought a lot in the past as I've studied about the two different stories that are happening, and of course I know, obviously, I don't want to be a person who would ever be described as working against God. Like, I don't want it to be ever said of me that what I planned for evil, God used for good. Like, that's not what I want, you know, my life to be defined by. And I don't think anybody in here would say that. Obviously, if we're all at a Bible study, we probably all want to be more in that first category of people who are cooperating, who are trying to be used by God and seeking God. But I think the more subtle danger is this third thing that we see happening with Israel. Because I also don't want, don't want it to be said of me that I was totally absent from what God was doing either. I don't want my life to look back and say, I was just living comfortably for myself over here, being my own God, doing what I want to do, completely oblivious to the work that God is accomplishing on this earth in and around me. Okay, I want to experience the work of the Holy Spirit both in me and through me. I want to be a part of his story of what he is doing. So I just wanted us to take a moment and ask yourself, 
Like, which of those three scenarios describes my life the most? I don't think many of us, or if at all, would describe us as being, like, working against God. But I think that those other two, we probably tend to kind of weave in and out of them. And so just, I just wanted us to take a moment and think, am I working and allowing, experiencing the Holy Spirit using me? Or am I kind of doing my own thing and I'm, like, absent from what God is doing? Okay, so let's go ahead and move on in the text and see what happens next. We're going to get back in in chapter 6. <clears throat> the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there had never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. <coughs> So the Philistines are pretty sure up to this point that it was probably Yahweh who had brought these tumors, presumably through these diseased mice. But there was still that little bit of doubt. Like, what if these mice and tumors that seemed to follow the ark were just kind of happening by chance? And so they come up with this plan to confirm for sure if this was doing, the doing of the God of Israel or not. They decide to make this offering to appease God and then send the offering and the ark back to Israel. Okay, So they decide to place this offering on this cart that's going to be pulled by two milk cows that had calves that they would have naturally wanted to go back to. And the calves were in this familiar direction of home. And the cows that they were using were not cows that you would have done this with. Like they were not every, they had probably never been hooked up to a cart before. This was not what you would do with the milk cow. And so for these cows, their every instinct would have been to resist this cart, to try to get back home to their calves who needed them. Um, and so the sign the Philistines look for as this total confirmation that this was, in fact, God who is the God of Israel who was doing all of this was that these cows would make the incredibly unlikely choice to pull a cart that they had not pulled before, head down a road that they did not usually go on, and follow that road away from their calves all the way out of their own home and into a foreign land. That was a very, very unlikely outcome. So for that to happen, it gave the Philistines kind of the ultimate proof that, yes, this had to have been the God of Israel. So, of course, the cows do take that unlikely road, not only delivering the presence of God back to Israel, but confirming to the Philistines that God was the one who had done all of this. So there was no 
room for doubt. God was victorious over the Philistines. The ark may have been captured, but God was not conquered. He defeated their false god. He defeated them. And he delivered his ark in his own kind of exodus from their land safely back home to Israel all by himself. What a tremendous proof of his power. He wasn't even working through people. He just did it all, all by himself. And it blows my mind that in just a few chapters, we're going to start to see Israel say, yeah, we want a person king. Like, can you imagine not wanting to follow this God who just proved this amount of power? Like, it blows my mind that Israel still wants a human king just right after all of this happening. So... Um, I also want you to notice something about the Philistines here before we turn our attention back to Israel in the next section. At this point, did the Philistines believe that Yahweh was more powerful than their God? I mean, it kind of looks that way to me. I kind of think they did. Did they believe that the Israelite God was real? Did they believe Yahweh was real? Yeah, they sure did. They definitely believed he was real. So what was their response? Was it to submit to him and choose to follow him? No, it was to send him away, okay? They believed he was real. They believed he had power over them, but that did not mean that they wanted to follow him. Guys, there is a very big difference between believing that God is real and actually submitting yourself to him as your Lord, actually following him and saying, I'm not my own God and king. God is my God and king. He is the ultimate authority in my life, and I'm going to lay down my life to follow wherever he leads. You see, the Philistines believed in the Israelite God that he was real and that he was powerful, but they did not submit to him and they did not follow him. And we're about to see that at this point in time, the Israelites were pretty much in the same boat. So let's go ahead and read, pick back up in chapter 6, verse 13. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua at Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Cariath Sherem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Cariath Sherem came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So the ark is returned, and at first Israel's glad to see it. But we can see right off the bat that they're still not truly taking the covenant seriously. 
they're not following the rules about how to handle the ark. And this wasn't just they happened to glance at the ark. Like I think most commentators said that it's more that they were looking into the ark, like looking inside of it. And not even the priests were allowed to do that. This was like a big, big no-no, okay? So as a result of this, a result of their callousness to God's law and to their instructions about the ark, not considering, not regarding it with the holiness that it was to be regarded in, um, a number of people are killed. That original number is written in a very, very strange way in the original language. And so if you were reading from a different version, you could have seen all sorts of different numbers all the way up to like 70,000. This is because it's written so strangely. But regardless of the actual number, um, we see that a number of Israelites die because they're not handling the ark correctly. And so what do they do? Do they then repent? No. Like the Philistines, they send it away. They send the ark away to another city where it sits for 20 years because the city that it was supposed to be in, I think, has been destroyed at this point. So well, not nearly as severe as what happened to the Philistines, there's a bit of a parallel. Do you see that there's a bit of a parallel between how things went when the ark was with the Philistines and how things are going for Israel now that the ark is back? Because in both instances, death rather than blessing comes. And instead of repentance, the ark is sent away. Okay? So even though the presence of God is back, something is still lacking for Israel. And they need somebody to lead them into making it right. Enter Samuel. Let's go ahead and read verse 2 in chapter 7 and see this next section. From the day that the ark was lodged at Christ-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Tell now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all from the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. So we see in the beginning of this section a big change in Israel here, because verse 2 says that they lamented after the Lord. Now, this word lamented, it's the same word used a lot in the Bible when it's talking about somebody who's lost a loved one and they are grieving and mourning their death, okay? So it's a word that kind of signifies 
kind of a, a deeper heart change that is grieving their loss of that covenant relationship that they had with the Lord. So sure, the ark was back, but they recognized that they were still not in right relationship with him, and they grieved the loss of the relationship that they had of him being their God and leading them. So Samuel then seizes this opportunity when their hearts are finally ready, which he could have been during these 20 years going around and preaching and kind of creating this culture. We don't know those details, but a lot of commentators think that maybe during those 20 years, Samuel did a lot of work to cultivate this, and we just don't know that for sure. But one way or another, he seizes the opportunity when their hearts are finally ready, and he leads the entire nation of Israel to repentance. Okay, We have a great model of what repentance looks like here. So you see in the text, he's going to tell them to do three things. He says, first, remove the foreign gods from among you. <clears throat> Second, direct your hearts to the Lord. And third, serve him only. So these false idols, these Baals and the Ashtaroth, they were more than just statues that they had in their homes. These were who Israel had been looking to when they wanted things like fertile crops for protection, for prosperity, or all of the things that God promised to them to provide in the covenant if they were faithful to them. God had promised all of these things. Israel was choosing to look to these foreign idols that were in their homes now, these foreign gods, for the things that God was supposed to provide. They believed that these gods could meet their needs, not Yahweh. These gods were attractive because they could be manipulated and controlled, typically through things like ritualistic prostitution and things like that. Whereas Yahweh had just so clearly demonstrated that he is not a puppet to be controlled like these false gods. So if their hearts were really turned to the one true God, they needed to turn away from all of these false ones. Like to truly repent is not to just turn towards God, but it's also to turn away from whatever it was that you had in God's place. We might not have statues of these strange foreign gods in our homes, but I can assure you that just like Israel, we all look to other things, things that we feel like we can control for our comfort, for our protection, for our provision. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's getting the best grades. Maybe it's a certain dating relationship that we're finding our value in. Maybe it's having the perfect family or at least looking to other people like you do. Really, any object of our affection can potentially become a false idol when we start looking to it for the things that only God can and should provide. So when we believe that these things can meet our deepest needs and desires more than we believe that the God who created us and knows our innermost being can, that's when we're in trouble. So we can't turn our hearts to God without first turning our hearts away from these idols. We can't serve two masters. And to repent is to wholeheartedly turn our worship to the right place. So Israel, they remove these foreign gods, and then we see that they're kind of tested immediately after, tested to see, is this genuine repentance? And this test reflects that there really has been a heart change. What happens is they gather at a place called Mizpah, um, which I had you mark on your map, um, but the word Mizpah means watchtower. And this city was a city that was set kind of high up, and it had a really great military vantage point. So this was kind of a considered a very crucial military city. And so when Philistines, they start to hear all of Israel is gathering at Mizpah, this strategic military city, well, all of a sudden they're going to be like, well, why are they gathering at this military city? Are they about to attack us? So a lot of people think that what happened was the Philistines assumed that Israel is getting ready to attack them, which they're not. So then the Philistines start to gather and try to get initiative on the attack. 
And so now they're facing an attack again, once again against the Philistines. But notice the difference now in how Israel responds. Before, when the Philistines were coming, they tried to manipulate God. They tried to take the ark, and they tried to force God's hand. But now, they're turning to God in a way that actually honors him and demonstrates their trust and dependence on him. And we hear in the text, the, Israel, or the Philistines are drawing near, but they don't cut this public corporate ceremony short. They still continue to cry out to the Lord, offering prayers up to God. And even though the enemy is literally drawing up near to them, they trust God alone to save them. They're looking to God to be their war hero once again. They're not gearing up for battle. They're not coming up with strategies. They're simply looking to God and trusting that he is going to defeat for them, okay? Um, so throwing out these idols, it wasn't just some legalistic external action that they were doing to try to get God's favor. It was a true sign that their hearts were trusting God once again as their protector and their provider. And they proved that when they were tested at this moment, and they put their faith and trust in him and him alone when the enemy was rushing upon them. So, of course, God shows up, and he thunders this great thunder. He confuses the Philistines, and he allows Israel to have victory over them. But we see that it's not just that. There's so much more that God does here because he also restores a lot of the land that the Philistines had taken from Israel. And not just little cities. Again, these are some major cities that are get restored to Israel. That's no small thing to overlook. And it also says that there's peace between Israel and certain groups of people. Okay, So what we're seeing is a picture of restoration of what belongs to Israel and a picture of peace coming again. So this is more than just them having a victory in battle. We're seeing a picture that Israel's covenant relationship with God was now renewed. They were finally being faithful to their end of the covenant, and therefore they were back to receiving God's favor and blessing once again as per the terms of their covenant. So we kind of leave this chapter breathing this huge sigh of relief that things are finally back as they should be between Israel and God. It's such a good feeling. It's, I wish it lasted longer in the book. Um, as we wrap up this section, though, I just want to remind you guys that our covenant with God is very different than Israel's. It's like we're not in the same kind of a conditional covenant like they were. So God does not promise us good life circumstances when we're faithful to him and bad life circumstances when we're not. That's just not the covenant that we live in anymore. We learned in our James study, for those of you who did that one, that God often uses suffering to produce things within us, produce really good things within us, okay? So I just don't want you to leave here and mistakenly believe that when you face difficulties or when you face suffering, that it's because you've sinned in some way or because God is not showing you favor or you're not in God's favor. Um, that's just no longer the way things work in the current covenant. What I do want you to leave here with, though, is just the understanding that even though our covenant is different, that God's desire and his commands to have us worship him and him alone, it's still the same. God still works in a lot of ways to turn our hearts back to him when our hearts are fixed worshiping something else. So the question for us is, when we are worshiping these other things and we do feel God tugging us back to turn our gaze back on him, how are we going to respond? Are we going to cling to our idols? And at the same time, are we going to try to use God for our own advantage, manipulating him and having the best of both worlds, serving both masters? Or are we going to make it a lifelong habit to genuinely repent and to turn from our false idols and with our whole hearts serve God alone? Let's pray. Dear God, just thank you so much just for the power that we find in your word. 
it is just it blows my mind every time we dig in of just how much is there and so thank you for what we have to learn and what you have um, taught us through this through this study tonight i just pray that as we go in our discussion groups that your spirit would just be leading and guiding our discussions that you would be helping us to reveal um, new things to each other i know we've all picked up on different things in the text and i pray that we would grow even more from discussing those things with each other and i i just pray that we would all leave here changed we would leave here impacted and having encountered you in some way um, bless our time discussing it's in your name we pray amen